Welcome to the SJ Child Show, where a little bit of knowledge can turn fear into understanding. Enjoy the show. Hi, and thanks for joining the SJ Child Show. We're so thankful that you are listening or joining us um, in video today. Uh, today, I have a special guest, Christopher Wyatt. And I do, Christopher Scott, do you go by that? Or how do you like to, what's your title? Like? Uh, Scott's fine. Oh, okay, wonderful. Well, it's so nice to have you here today. I'm excited to learn more about you and really just kind of share your story. And yeah, so tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're here today. I'll start with the why I'm here. I am the parent of two neurodiverse daughters. And I have been, I think, experiencing all of the struggles that most parents encounter with our school system, our supports, the health professions, but the added stress to that is that as a neurodiverse and disabled individual myself, I had hoped when my wife and I became parents that many of the problems and challenges I had faced growing up would have been greatly reduced through social change and some of the legislative mandates that have been enforced over the last few years. But the reality is that I'm finding that my daughters are encountering the same obstacles that I encountered and that the education system, despite legal mandates to do various things, what has happened instead is our schools and our businesses have become very good at documenting things and much like ISO certification, documenting a process doesn't mean the process works. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that the truth? No. And it's so important that we bring these things to light because, you know, we have the the typical students that go to school and their parents, they need to know that the processes that we have to go through as parents of neurodiverse children and all of the accommodations that need to be met and how hard it is to keep the schools kind of doing what they're supposed to and also being supportive as well. Because I think that, you know, it's really falls on the shoulders of the parents often to have to really stand up and advocate for their kids. We are experiencing, I think, a tectonic shift in education right now that is distracting from a lot of what needs to be done at a very core level. So while school boards are focused on which books out of, you know, a half dozen might offend somebody, yeah. or when they're focused on what teachers and students wear, mm. or what other issues might or might not be taught, the reality is, and I don't mean to, I don't want this to sound insulting or anything like that, but I know it might, but the reality is fewer than 10% of students take and pass advanced placement courses. Well, we're debating which AP courses are going to teach history. That has nothing to do with the majority of students in special education much less the majority of students. Yes. 
Well, we're focused on all of these cultural issues that to some parents are very key and very important. What I care about is can the schools teach my child to read, to write, to do simple mathematics, to function in a small social setting like a classroom? Can they help my children with some core life skills that are part of education, whether we want to call those educational tasks or not? So I understand that parents get very animated about these various core issues to them, but the real core function of education to me is helping every student gain the skills necessary for adulthood. Mm -hmm. Those skills might be for some students college prep, but for a lot of students, those might be vocational prep. For another set of students, my special needs child, uh, my youngest, I believe in my heart that a vocational path is what she will probably follow. And that's just as valid as any other path. But what they're teaching in AP calculus or AP history is never going to apply to her. And and I, and she is a wonderful and loving and great human being and her needs matter. Yeah. So while these school boards are tied up in these political things, I just want my children to get basic supports. Mm -hmm. So we have that issue going on right now. And then at the very, uh, at the very heart of education, we have teachers leaving. We have special education teachers who left during the pandemic who are not going to come back. We have a shortage of assessment personnel and the assessment personnel. A lot of parents would look at this and say, wow, we've got two non-teachers for every teacher. That might be true in a small school, but assessment personnel, your school nurse, your school counselors, those, uh, the reading specialist is not considered a teacher because the the student gets pulled out for dyslexia or gets uh, pulled out for reading developmental work. So what happens is parents see these numbers and they start resisting any support for the school saying, well, they don't have enough teachers. All these people aren't teachers. And that's true. The behavioral aid is not a teacher. The paraprofessional who's helping the student with physical needs is not a teacher. That's all very true. It is. They are not teachers. But I have to tell you, my mother worked for many years in special education, uh, probably more than 30. She was a paraprofessional. And without the two or three paraprofessionals in that classroom for special needs, the teacher could not have functioned. No, 100%. So when parents hear someone saying on a political campaign, oh, well, that district has more non-teachers than teachers, that's probably true. And you need to think very carefully about why that is, because every bus driver, every crossing card, every janitor, if they are on district payroll, they're a non-teacher. Interesting. I don't think you can have as many teachers as non-teachers. I just don't see how you could do that. Yeah, makes sense. Absolutely. When we really need to, you know, like you said, why do we keep teaching skills that are number one, not for everyone? um, And number two, you know, for not for life skills, where are they? They've taken a lot of like home ec classes out and, and things like that. That's so strange to me. Like we're, we've, you know, decided that, the kids, like you said, they need to be just good test takers instead of good citizens 
for society and for those of us who need our children to have accommodations for that and want them to get uh, a free appropriate education, you know, then we have those fights we have to put up with, with, you know, those school districts or teachers um, to get those accommodations met. What are some steps that you've taken with your family to make sure those accommodations are met for them? Well, the the very sad reality is that we are homeschooling again. Hmm. Um, yeah, I get that. And the problems that we encountered in public schools post-COVID were not unique to where we live. They are not unique to the United States even. When our children returned, there were there, there were just fewer personnel available to provide the supports. You had a lot of interim credential and non-credentialed educators. You had a lot of turnover in administrative positions. So the turmoil and chaos that was created by the pandemic situation has made it difficult to meet the needs of the students. So we found it better at home for our youngest. Now, our oldest is twice exceptional. So we have a fifth grader and a third grader. The fifth grader is gifted. Mm. Um, and And I say that with, you know, the school district is still doing the assessment or whatever, but She's already at home. Um, next year, she will be going to a charter school that is college prep focused and college prep tracked. What we found was that if you are outside the, the norms in any way, they can't really meet your needs in most school settings. Mm-hmm. So homeschooling became essential for the youngest because her ADHD uh combined with her speech language pathologies, which include dyslexia and dysgraphia, those challenges that she had were making it difficult to function in a crowded and chaotic classroom that was being overseen by a new teacher. Mm-hmm. So you didn't have the experienced teacher. You didn't have paraprofessionals in the room to support that teacher. There just wasn't enough there to help my youngest. Mm. The oldest we were very curious about what was going on because she complained that she felt isolated and alone. And what we found was that because she was ahead of many of her peers who had fallen behind during COVID, that the teachers had created leveled groups Mm. so they could work with the middle group, the low group, the high group. And what we found was she was sitting either alone or with one or two other students at the high level bored out of her mind. So when we asked, well, we noticed you haven't brought home any homework. Well, I don't have any. You haven't had a library book. Well, we haven't gone to the library or I haven't gone to the library since Thanksgiving. And we started running through this. So what are you doing during the 20 to 30 minutes of silent reading time? I don't know, drawing, doodling, daydreaming. So when you think about it, if that's 30 minutes a day of silent reading, that's an hour and a half a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, No, that's actually uh, two and a half hours, two and a half hours of nothing, nothing daydreaming. Yeah. Two and a half hours. (laughs) Yeah. And so by bringing her home, now what we do is we have her in art school for 
I think an hour and a half to two hours a week. So nice. in a private art school, yeah. she's in school of rock for music oh, cool. she's on a local swim team through the YMCA. So what we found was instead of dead time where she's sitting at a desk daydreaming and doodling, she is engaged with other homeschooled students and mm-hmm. with other people her age. And I quite honestly believe she's getting more art education, more music education, more athletics in this environment before she goes into a middle school that is better situated for her needs. Yeah. Now The oldest is neurodiverse and she does have an autism diagnosis. So for her being isolated was something not unusual to her, but it was very odd that she found that she's sitting there with nobody else equal to where she's reading to where she's doing science and we got her report cards. We're looking at straight 100s in the English, straight 100s in the social science, straight 100s in science. It's like, okay, well, you 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 have perfect grades, literally. Yeah. <laughs> what more can we do for you? So at home this week, she was building models of the skeleton and she did a model of the human muscle, you know, the muscular system. So she's building some of these kits and she's doing hands-on stuff. Yeah. And again, so the schools couldn't meet the low-level student who really needed some developmental supports because there are no people. Yeah. Just, I can't blame the school entirely because a lot of people after COVID said, I can earn more money. I can earn $23 an hour at several local retail outlets or even fast food locally is paying. Uh, I recently saw uh, a flyer at the Panda Express, seventy to eighty thousand dollars a year. Well, a teacher starting in Texas is looking at fifty to fifty-five. Wow. Uh, okay. Plus, you get to take work home. You get to keep renewing your credentials. So you're taking classes every summer. You have to keep up with your, you know, your CPR and your yeah, and you have to do all these things. Versus a job where you go, you come home. Yeah, exactly. It pays. 30, 40% more. So we have lost educators and we have lost the support professionals because if you're a paraprofessional, you don't get the respect a teacher does. They don't understand what you do. I can see moving on. So the youngest didn't have the support she needed. Well, at the same time, the oldest, because she was gifted, they also don't have all of those programs anymore because those are tied up in political nonsense. Mm. Yeah. No, I can't believe how similar our families are, which is so amazing when that happens because we don't know each other ahead of time. Um, But our oldest son is twice exceptional. He was reading at one and writing at two nonverbal till he was four, but had, you know, three languages by the time he was six and on and on and on. Now we call him 13 going on college professor. And then the, you know, 11 year old, who the same as your youngest, the dyslexia, dysgraphia, autism, ADHD, and really understanding. And the funny thing is she's actually the one that's in school at a charter school that is getting actually great support this year. I'm so so thankful for, but our oldest has been home since first grade. Um, You know, it's just been like this impossible feat to find proper program for him to be a part of. I am heartbroken that I am enrolling both daughters in charter schools next year. I believe that every community benefits from having 
educated workers, educated citizens, educated individuals who are interested in self-improvement and mm. the community. The reality is that it is very difficult for schools to get funding. It is very difficult for schools to encourage parent participation. Mm. There are a lot of obstacles. And I would argue that this is coming from, unfortunately, across the political spectrum. And parents are stuck in the middle because most of us aren't politically engaged radicals. We are mm -hmm. not. We want an education. And what happens is we've seen in parts of Texas, I'm, I'm thinking of some communities uh, south of Austin, people move in with a political agenda, take over the school board, focus on all the political things. They, they, they just voted down some school bonds around um, the Austin area. What, what people read when they hear a school bond will affect your taxes, they say, okay, well, I'm not paying anymore because it's not a very good school. And then you point out, well, our elementary school has a lot of portable buildings because they need a classroom. You're saying you don't want to give them money because the students aren't doing well, but has it dawned on you that they're not doing well because they don't have a classroom? Environment, absolutely. And these are hard choices that cities and counties need to make as they invest in their, in their programs. And also the funding mechanism, which does vary state by state, but in most states, you're looking at property taxes, funding, education. You can look at some uh, county reserve programs, depending on the state. And then you also have state supplemental um, funding, which usually comes through average daily attendance. Mm -hmm. So what happens is you have local, uh, state, and, and federal mandates on top of everything, and never the money to do it all properly. Mm -hmm. So, of course, they focus on the one thing that everyone hears about, which is test scores. I understand why this happens, but it's often a very, uh, very intentional misreading of No Child Left Behind. Mm -hmm. No Child Left Behind did not call for annual testing at all grades. It did not. It does not mandate any such thing. I don't know where this test, test mania came from <laughs> other than companies that make tests. Yeah, right. I, I cannot the truth. fathom why. And state yeah. legislatures, because if No Child Left Behind said that you were supposed to evaluate students in fourth, eighth, and twelfth grade, which makes sense when you think about it, middle school and high school, right? Mm -hmm. We really need to know where our eighth graders are and where our twelfth graders are leaving as yeah. they go into the world. Yeah. And yet they are testing every single year at every single mm. grade level. Right. And that is a state thing because there is no such federal mandate to do that. Interesting. So what happens is these states do it and they publish these report cards and they make it a competition to move into the better neighborhoods with the higher property tax values. And they've really created this conflict over test scores which is even only part of an education because typically the test scores they look at are reading and math. Yeah. Social studies is rarely included in testing. In some states, science is only included in later grades mm -hmm. or if at all. Yeah. So they focus on math and English at the detriment of all of, as we've said, the life skills. You're not going to get a good civics education because, well, my gosh, civics isn't tested. So let's not bother to, you know, with too much time on being a good citizen. We've got to get those math scores up. Yeah, it's crazy. And, and I can't blame the 
entirely the teachers or administrators for the, these choices, but we need to we need to remind our ourselves and our state leaders that the federal government doesn't say you have to test everything all the time and it should stop. Yeah. What are some, what can we do? What can we do as citizens and, you know, parents of our special needs kids and how can we help um, just as regular people to make some changes? I think the first thing is to start by recognizing that the teacher you are working with for your student that teacher is overwhelmed by all of these mandates to fill out the IEP, the 504 plan. If you have a behavioral intervention plan, a, a BIP, if you have all of these things going on, that teacher has to has to record and log all of that. Mm. So each new thing that you give a teacher is taking away from their instructional time because they have to take the time to, to plan these things. Yeah. If you have taken away the support personnel, now that's all on the teacher without the, the help of a paraprofessional. So a lot of things that parents do wrong start with those early contacts with the teacher. We have to remember that that teacher is dealing with between you know 20 and 25 and some states as high as 30 students. Yeah. Up to a third of them have some sort of special intervention ranging from an IEP all the way to a gifted and talented designation. There are twice exceptional students, as, as we've said, with our oldest and your oldest. We're dealing then with a student who might have both an IEP and a gifted and talented. Yeah. <laughs> These teachers are overwhelmed. And I think we need to recognize that we need to go in first off to that teacher and say, I want to help you help my student. What do you need from me at home? How can I prepare my student to come in better prepared for the day? Can we set up some routine so you're less stressed helping my student while at the same time my student is less stressed about going to school? Mm -hmm. When it comes to administrators, the turnover is getting very high, especially in some states of superintendents and principals. Mm -hmm. It is reaching the point of absurd. The one report I read and I cannot recall if it was if it was Texas or Florida, but where you're now looking at year and a half is about as long as a superintendent's lasting. Wow. And part of that is because of the very rapid turnover in superintendents in the last two years, three years, as boards vote them off for whatever reasons. So you don't have steady leadership. So taking this up with your principals and your superintendents is almost a non-starter because those people will be gone in a year or two mm, mm. At, at far too many schools. Yeah. Your teacher is your first line of defense, your teacher and having that good working relationship with that mm. classroom teacher. School boards need to be remembered that all of the time that they're spending on social issues and hot button issues for a handful of students if they're important to you, that's nice that they're important to you, but they're not helping the majority. Yeah. You are wasting time while you are debating five books that offended you. You are wasting time while you are fighting over spending on one little tiny line item. You're forgetting all of the other items in a school bond or in a school funding plan. Yeah. I read about a, a Virginia school district that was trying to figure out how to deal with integrating bathrooms and potential transgender students. And no one had asked the very simple question, is there even a transgender student on your, in your district? Mm -hmm. 
but they were wasting hours and hours of school board meetings deciding which bathrooms to shut down and which things to remodel because there are building codes on how many stalls you have to have for, for male and female when you build anything, especially with public access. Yeah. And I'm sitting there thinking you were wasting all this time instead of what should our teacher pay be? How can we retain our best? How can we retain our best teachers? How can we attract better teachers into the profession? You were wasting all your time on an issue that might affect one or two students in the entire high school. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And, and this upsets me as someone who is, I strongly support some of the, the social um, equality movements going, you know, diversity, equity, uh, inclusion. These are important concepts, but as we debate them on the so-called left and right, my child's needs aren't being met. Yeah. And, you know, like, let's think about it. I, when you think about other parts of the world, there are no high school athletics. Hmm. You go to school in Germany, you go to school. Then you join a local city league if you care about sports. Hmm. There are universities. They don't have giant stadiums for football, soccer. They don't have them. You're not going to find a 110,000-seat stadium at a university like Cambridge or Oxford. It's hmm. not going to happen. We are so focused on our cathedrals to athletics and then who can and can't participate who's a boy who's a girl who can wear this who can wear that yeah our athletics are primary purpose for our schools mm, no and if they're not then why are they consuming so much of our debate time in our board meetings when mm. the board can just say okay athletic boosters you want to raise money for something go raise money we need new science equipment because our science tech book you know is still talking about landing on the moon Right. Yeah. You know, we are being distracted by the political whims of these two fringes. And it's those parents of the special needs student of the twice exceptional student paying the price. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. the charter school that we're enrolling our oldest in proudly says we do not have a football team. And yes. We're in Texas. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I we know, don't I think have it's... the money for that. I've used that before as just kind of an analogy of how upside down our society is. Like we pay football players, baseball players, these gorgeous, you know, ridiculous amount of money and our schools and our children suffer so that they can watch a football game. It's, it's absolutely absurd. And I'm not, you know, not saying that athletics and like good health is not an important thing. Right. But the way that we, um, honor those things in this, in society is just backwards and absurd to me. <laughs> well, you know, and I certainly, I love that my, my oldest is active, that she's interested yeah. in swim team. I love that the youngest for a while was doing jujitsu and swim. I love those things. Absolutely. But what I'm saying is our school districts, when we take a look at where we're spending our money and devoting our resources and even our resources include the time and energy debated by school boards. Yeah. Yeah. I remember how many hours and hours were wasted talking about who can or can't lead a, a moment of silence before football games. And all I can think of it during the school board meeting is you're aware that we don't have enough testing professionals for 
kids with special needs. We we don't have enough yeah. paraprofessionals. We don't have enough admissions officers. So again, these issues that are important to people might be hiding real problems with our schools. As you said, well, they're debating all of these other social issues. Do they have what they need to teach? Auto shop, wood shop, home economics, uh, what's now called uh, domestic science and things like that. Do we do we have those classes for those yeah. students who are interested? Now, the proper name nationally is career and technical education, CTE. Mm. But CTE programs get cut very quickly mm. during all these fights because if you have to pay a hundred and let's say you have to pay $150,000 in legal fees because your district got tied up fighting over two books in the library, that $150,000, I guarantee you, is going to come from the students who are taking wood shop, welding, auto shop, you know, maybe the culinary arts, maybe some of the other vocational programs, because they're not going to cut the AP history. They're not going to cut from uh, the average classes that the parents see. They're going to cut from those edges. Mm-hmm. They're not going to cut the baseball program or the basketball program, mm-hmm. but they'll cut something to cover that hundred thousand dollars in legal fees that they just wasted. Mm-hmm. And that's what concerns me. And and it isn't that I don't um, don't see their concerns, but I don't think they're seeing the big picture of there's such a limited amount of money. Yeah, absolutely. And going to a charter school which we are going to do next year with both of our our children, the special needs charter school means that our local district will not get her ADA funds. Mm -hmm. She will not be part of the local district. So now as a problem, she just goes away. And we move her to a charter school that better meets her needs. But then the charter school begs for additional donations, has to do fundraising. And the one and the charter school for the gifted that the oldest is going to does the same thing. They want parents to sign up for a monthly a direct deposit donation to keep mm. their programs going. Interesting. They, again, she will be money that our local district doesn't get from ADA because she will not be in the local district. So our local district loses both of those students' average daily attendance funding, loses them for testing purposes, loses them in terms of advocacy. And now two charter schools pick them up. One that's even in a different county. Mm. Um, so the, the youngest, her money will then go to Travis County, which is south of us. The oldest is going to be attending the charter school, which is in Georgetown. So that money goes away from our local community. So I'm not thrilled, mm-hmm. but as a parent, as a parent, I have to look at our local board and say, you just built a brand new, beautiful football stadium. It is a gorgeous football stadium. It, it is amazing. And they are getting ready to do some new things, but Parents are opposing the new bond for classrooms. Mm. You know, they have a new bond issue where they want to build a second high school, which is badly needed here. They want to build another middle school, which is badly needed because quite honestly, things are old and you need new. Yeah. And people are fighting those. And it's a political movement to fight those and say, well, they need to get certain things right and close the office of diversity and they need to do this before we'll give them any money. So let's say that they don't pass the $500 million bond. Well, now none of the maintenance work can be done. None of the teachers can get paid increases. None of the, so <sighs> yeah, you, you taught the district a lesson about being too progressive. Yeah. You taught the student, that, but you taught them a lesson. How by taking away the core funding, mm-hmm. yeah. you made your political point, but now every student suffers. 
Yeah, absolutely. Oh, man. And and it isn't that I don't agree that maybe there's some books that my fifth grader doesn't need to read. Maybe that's the case. Maybe it isn't. But quite honestly, if they're not even going to the library, it doesn't matter. Right? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) If you're not even going to a library, who cares? Yeah. You're not going to find a book anyways. Yeah. Oh, my heavens. No, I agree. And I'm so glad that we're able to bring some of these topics and subjects to light um, because they are important to be for other parents. And like you said, community and community funding and school funding, we all need to be aware of these things. And it's, it's tough. Yeah. So my background is, is complicated, but I do have the PhD. I specialize in what's what I would call the rhetoric of economics. And often within special education is how do you persuade people to allocate scarce resources appropriately? And I often look at special needs and accommodation for the disabled and the the challenge that I see as someone who works in education and who has been a college instructor and, and professor, the, the problems that we have in our K-12 end up magnified by our universities. Mm-hmm. And to give you an example, I taught at Carnegie Mellon as a visiting professor, visiting assistant professor. Only two of my students during one of the years, two, were from the Pittsburgh area. So Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Carnegie, Andrew Carnegie built this university for the local community, but the vast majority of my students in my courses were foreign students. Mm, Brilliant, wonderful human beings. I am still in touch with many of them, and I am so thrilled that many of them chose to become Americans, you know, become U.S. citizens and stay here and I'm, I'm, that's exciting. But why, why is it that we didn't have at least half of our honor students from the Pittsburgh area or from Pennsylvania, at least? Here in Texas, a growing number of our students at the University of Texas, Texas A&M and Texas Tech are from abroad. Mm. Why? Because our K-12 programs are wasting so much time and energy on debates that don't happen anywhere else in the world. Interesting. You don't hear parents in Korea or Japan or Germany or France say, my kid can't do math or my kid can't learn language arts or my kid can't, you know, we need a bigger sports program. Those aren't the debates they're having. Mm -hmm. They're having, how can we get every student to be excellent or to the best of their ability in every single subject? They're not having these debates we're having and we're busy spinning our wheels. Oh man, that's, we have a lot to learn by maybe looking at some of those other countries. <laughs> don't look at what they're teaching, but look at how they approach education. Yes, exactly. Because I think what we need to teach here is different. I don't want, I don't need a, a German or a French or a Korean education for my child. Um, but what I want is that community emphasis, that community idea that we had yeah. 40, 50 years ago, that the local school is the community, that the local yeah. school, the local teacher, the school board, There was a pride in our community schools. The kids walked to the schools. And yet here in Texas right now, there is a movement to uh, support school vouchers, school choice, more charter schools. So what happens is in a neighborhood, maybe, I don't know, the kid across the street from you is going to one school and the kid, you know, down two doors down is going to another school and your kid's going to a different charter school. 
to me, the, the concept of community is what makes us care about each other. At what yeah. It's what makes us invest in each other. If our kids are all going to different charter schools and different pr- private schools, if we are all doing our own thing, then there isn't that community involvement and that community agreement yeah. that we need better schools for mm-hmm. our city and our county. Mm-hmm. It's says, oh, my kid goes to the charter school. I don't care what happens to your school. Yeah. And again, I am making the same decision I would accuse the state of letting happen that, that has hurt schools. And that is, I there, I think as a parent, I have no choice but to, to invest in the private, not the private, but the charter, the nonprofit charter schools for our daughters that has a dyslexia specialist in the special needs school, that has a reading intervention specialist, that has a paraprofessional in the classroom, that not only invites, but encourage parent volunteers to help the teachers, where there's some stability, where the same principal has been there three or four years, instead yeah. of every two years, it's a new principal. Um, it breaks my heart, but so I feel guilty about sending my kids to the charter schools and, and even homeschooling and pulling out their funds. But as a disabled individual myself who struggled with being physically and neurologically different, I have to think about and advocate for my kid. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean I give up fighting for the local schools and hoping that they someday improve enough to serve everybody. Yeah. But right now, I don't believe our local schools do serve everybody. Mm-hmm. I think they serve two weeks of state testing and they serve. Yeah, right. <laughs> Those fear, board members. <laughs> the fear of the board members of getting thrown out by parents who, who are concerned about critical yeah. race theory or who knows what else right. is around the corner scaring them. Yeah. And I have these debates all the time as an educator. Someone will say, well, you know, but we saw where critical race theory is getting involved in English and it's getting into math and it's getting, if you read books, if you read Mark Twain, Mark Twain technically is talking about how one group of people is treated differently than another. Mm -hmm. That's just the way history is. History is sloppy and messy and not so (laughs) It just is. Exactly. You know, if, if someone wants to to label Mark Twain as guilty of teaching something on race, well, yeah, he is. He's teaching us about how bad we were. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I We don't need to get rid of all books. We don't need to get, everything's going to offend somebody on the left or the right. And it's just, like I said, we're so obsessed with this stuff that we're missing. Does my kid go to school? Has my kid learned to read? Yeah. Has my kid learned to write? Can my kid, by the time they're out of high school, quite honestly, I, I'd love it if every kid who graduated high school had to show that they could make uh, craft macaroni and cheese. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Can yes. you read directions, take measurements, yeah. you know, boil some water? I, it sounds silly, but right now, I don't think that we're, we're not getting kids to the level where they can function. Yeah, exactly. They can bubble in some test scores for English and math, on what's on the test because the teacher's afraid of getting judged, the principal's afraid of getting judged, the school district's afraid of getting judged. We have got to get back to the the core of of education instead of all of these other ancillary obsessions. Student first. And what's sad is if I talk to people, whether they consider themselves to be progressive or conservative, when I point out that how much are you talking about basic math? 
Uh, well, you know, the library has these books. Okay, but did you know that our students are less than half of them are grade proficient in math? Mm -hmm. No, I didn't know that. Well, maybe we should first focus on math. Yeah. Basic math. You know, can't do they know um, how many amendments are the Bill of Rights? You know, do do they know the Bill of Rights? Do they know Article One yeah. of the Constitution, Article Two of the Con? Do they know these things? And and then when people start saying, well, you know, I I don't know, but you know, I heard that they're going to let a gay pride club meet. Okay, that's nice. That's after school hours. That doesn't deal with my kid who, quite honestly, is not at a social level. Well, we're joining clubs is going to matter. Yeah. You know, are you focused on those? Do you know that we don't have a certain number of teachers who meet the, the national standard for excellence in their subject area? And if they look at you and say, well, no, I didn't know that, but I'm going to run for school board and I'm going to stop this, that, or the other, or I'm going to make sure that we stand up for these things. You know, that's nice. I'm, I'm glad that you're going to stand up for equality and you're going to fight against it and whatever. I don't yeah. care. I just want a teacher for my kid and a paraprofessional who can help with the behavior issues. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I want a school nurse who's not roving around four different campuses. So when we went to the campus yesterday, the school nurse wasn't there, but she had called us asking us to pick up some things that, that my oldest had left behind uh, for her, her physical needs. And the nurse wasn't there. I'm like, well, where's the nurse? Oh, well, she's at the other campus. So even your school nurses aren't there full time because we're not funding them, but we're busy fighting all these social battles mm. in red state, blue state, whatever. And meanwhile, I'm like, well, where's the nurse? Well, we only have one and she goes to four campuses. Priorities. How does this work if there's an emergency? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. How does this work for the kid who has a safety mm. helmet because that kid has spina bifida or whatever? Mm -hmm. My child has an orthopedic brace. What happens if the orthopedic brace needs to be adjusted and the nurse is, you know, two miles away at another school site? Yeah. Well, we have one nurse. Really, this is the priority, but we're we're busy arguing over other things. Yeah, definitely. And I'm always stunned about how many people who are making these arguments don't have kids in the school. Isn't that the truth, huh? That's a really hard one to to be faced with as well. Yeah, I, I feel like saying, okay, well, governor, whoever did your, you know, and I don't care if it's, uh, you know, a, a, a blue state governor or a red state governor. I, I have yet to meet many politicians who sent their kids to the public schools. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but yet they're making decisions for our children. Yeah, it's like, do yeah. your kids go to your, your public school? Well, no, yeah. you know, it's, it's a matter of safety. Oh, <laughs> oh. So what you're uh, saying is our schools aren't safe. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree they're not. Yeah. Uh, but your kids aren't in them. So you, you know. Yeah. Exactly. So you're not actually fixing the problem. Mm -mm. So that that bothers me when I hear. Or educated like, about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When I hear that the politicians, you know, as I said, left and right, they're sending their kids to private schools in New York, private schools in California, private schools here in Texas. Yeah. They're not sending their kids to the local school. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Uh, so don't tell me that you are protecting the kids fighting this issue or that issue because left and right, your kids are going to some elite school. They're going to go to Harvard. They're going to go to Yale. Mm -hmm. You went to Harvard or Yale. 
You don't right. care about the state university because you didn't go to one. Trust yeah. me. <laughs> and again, it's it's heartbreaking, but I can say this about whether it's on the left or the right. You look at the the politicians, they all went to Yale or Harvard. They all got, you know, the the Fulbright scholarships and went overseas and did, you know, Cambridge, Oxford, LSE. They're not typical and they don't fight the battles that the typical parent does. Yeah. They're like, oh, well, we passed a law, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Okay, do you know what that law has done? It's made education better. Really? What it's done is it's created checklists of paperwork that you go to a meeting with your child and you sit through an IEP or a 504 or an ARD where they check little boxes and try to figure out what is the least they can do on their very limited budgets Mm -hmm. to provide a free and semi-appropriate, but not quite appropriate education. You haven't accomplished anything and because your kid's not in the schools. Don't give me that. You know, that it's, it's been fixed. Yeah. Yeah. Or that the passion is really there for it. Exactly. Oh my goodness. And when you're as passionate, I think, as the special needs parents get, we start to recognize, I think because we have to, that all these people who are using education as a political football are promoting their next campaign. Mm, yeah. yeah. I will say it bluntly. I think Gavin Newsom in California is doing what he's doing in their schools so he can run for president saying, mm. look at me. Greg Abbott is doing what he's doing in Texas for something national. Ron DeSantis is aiming for something national. And again, as you, as I said, Newsom in California is guilty of this. You're seeing this in, in New York with movements that they're making. This is not a red-blue thing. It is a politician thing. How can yeah. I exploit children? How can I use the children as a campaign issue? Mm-hmm. How can I say that this group or that group doesn't love children? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and meantime try to get a paraprofessional in your classroom, try to find out how much, how how much time does your school nurse or your school psychologist spend on your campus? It's not enough to hear, oh, well, we have a psychologist or we have a a nurse. Really? What hours are they here on campus? Yeah. Oh, well, they're here Mondays and Wednesdays from 10 to two. Yeah. Oh, where are they? You know, where are these people? The rest of Oh, well, they're at the other six. No, that doesn't work. Yeah. But we aren't asking these questions, and I don't think either side wants us to ask these questions. They want to tackle the big, you know, gets headlines, gets me on the news. I get some, do some sound bites, you know, here in California, we're going to embrace everyone. Here in Florida, we're going to protect you all from the whatever agenda. And parents are stuck not knowing that there's no school nurse, not knowing that there's no special needs assessment, not knowing that there's no gifted and talented program. We don't know all these things because everyone's so busy talking about what's in the school library, the school gym, school athletics, you know, who's competing against whom. (laughs) Yeah. And we're caught in that fringe. Our kids aren't going to be on the star, the, the football stars. Right. They're not going to be the, the AP test takers, a lot of them. You know, hopefully your oldest is and my oldest is, but a lot of our children aren't. Yeah. So the special needs parent, these debates don't even apply to us. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Do you have a website? I know you do because I went there, right? You have... Um, 
where we somebody can get in touch with you if they want to get more information or help you or you know get an advocate kind of on their side? Well, I am I blog as the autistic me that's also fed through Twitter and even LinkedIn and elsewhere, uh, just autistic me. So it's at autistic me on, on Twitter. You can also then look for autistic me on Facebook. The, the blog is a little more complicated, uh, but I'll, I, I hope we can put the link there. In the Absolutely. Website. Facebook is, is easy because then they can link to the blog. They can find the podcast. The podcast is called perspectives on neurodiversity mm-hmm. because there isn't a single perspective. There's there are many things with which I disagree, but I've had guests on and talk about yeah. um, as a neurodiverse individual, I don't find the puzzle piece really represents me. I hope not because technically I think all humanity is a puzzle. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but, but, but I'm not going to, I don't say, Oh, well, you can't be on my podcast because you don't believe what I believe. I think that's yeah. half the problem we have in this world is we're not listening to each other. Yeah. So if they look for autistic me, they will find those things. And if you look for perspectives on neurodiversity on iTunes or Apple podcasts now, or anywhere else, you'll find the podcast. I, I try to be, as I say, an equal opportunity curmudgeon. <laughs> I'm, I'm really tired of everyone ignoring special needs. They think yeah. we put in a wheelchair ramp. We did IDEA. We passed ADA years ago. Everything's all better now. Yeah, that's not the case. You wouldn't be homeschooling. <laughs> I wouldn't be homeschooling. Exactly. We wouldn't go out in our communities and find ourselves, you know, treated the way we are, truly. And, you know, our, our definitely our society really does need to do better. And what really, you know, a parting thought for, on how I take this is, unfortunately, even those who say that they are allies and advocates, a lot of times you end up with a very soft, almost condescending, um, ableism mm. of, oh, you know, we know your daughter will always need supports. I don't know that. Yeah. I don't expect her to become a genetic you know, scientist or something. I don't expect <laughs> that she'll become an astrophysicist, but there is no part of me that thinks she can't become a healthy, yeah. happy, productive, independent member of society. I, I don't like the condescension either yeah. of, oh, well, we need to do better for people like her. How can we let her be the best she she can be? I don't mm-hmm. want I don't want either the soft condescension of of ableism that I hear on, on some progressive podcast who are always talking about what can be done for those in need. Well, how about you listen to them and you not talk so much? Hmm. (laughs) I like that. Yeah. You know, active listening, right? Yes. When I take, when we do an IEP or a 504, I take my daughters in and I just say, what would you like? What do you need? A hundred percent. We just had ours yesterday and that's exactly what we did. Her and I went over all of the accommodations she could ask for if she needs them ahead of time. And then when we were in the meeting, it was so much easier to say, well, this is something that we talked about previously that you might need. So teachers, this is what we are looking at. And everybody was, it was just like smooth and yeah, it was like flawless. (laughs) I'm going to take, you know, it's, it's, it's a, I don't know, kind of a altru. It's a, 
it's a truism that obviously isn't always accurate, but it's the saying that you notice that it's a lot of men voting on women's rights. It's a lot of upper class people voting on poverty programs. It's a lot of able-bodied people voting on how they're going to help the disabled. Mm -hmm. As someone who is disabled, I, it, I always thought, well, why don't they ask me with my palsy? Um, you know, why is it that using a mouse is difficult and I want a trackpad? You know, I, I have tremors on one side. Why don't they ask someone in a wheelchair, is this ramp wide enough? Mm -hmm. You know, why don't they yeah. ask someone who's blind, have we made this room, you know, accessible for you and your needs? Yeah. You know, is the Braille, I, I saw a place where they put up Braille signs and all the Braille signs were up about my eye level. So if it was someone who was short or, you know, the Braille would have yeah. never been found. Oh, heavens. <laughs> like, well, we put the Braille up. Well, <laughs> Okay. Yeah, let's be aware of uh yeah, what we're doing for everyone in that sense. No, I I can by, agree with that. Yeah, by not bringing us into the conversation. And yeah. I think that's really where DEI has gone off the rails is a lot of these DEI initiatives are by people who aren't part of the very artistic. Community. Exactly. Exactly. No, I, I completely agree. And you know, like you, um, I'm not sure when you well, obviously CP you've had your whole life, but with the, do you have a, also a neurodivergent autistic me is your blog. So you must have that, <laughs> have an autism diagnosis. I just got mine in last May. So for me, it's this whole new perspective of kind of a site overseeing everything, uh, double checking, you know, kind of all the years back and everything and looking and seeing, wow, this things could have gone so differently here. So much easier if this, if, you know, that kind of an idea, but I love having the perspective now to be able to say, okay, I see where my daughter's at. I see where my son's at. I see where my husband's at. Um, and you know, where he's more, uh, needs more sleep or less sleep. And, and I just, I can honor those things rather than, oh, this is what society expects of you. So you must follow these rules of society. Um, it, it's been a really life-changing, amazing perspective. As an autistic individual, I often talk in front of audiences in, in large groups about everything from my experiences as a student to becoming a, a professor and, and educator and what i when i deliver speeches i often find that they find things funny that i don't think are funny and part of that is is because that bluntness and that that lack of tact saying things as they are it gets me in trouble in in the university settings or in the school settings where you shouldn't be saying some of these things in this highly polarized culture in which we currently exist it just it it's unusual to be the person that says, wait, you're both wrong. You're not listening to each other and you're both wrong anyway. <laughs> you know, well, you're worried about this big issue of these books. Do we have a school nurse? They just kind of look at you. And now the, the parents in the audience all laugh because they get it. Mm. But the people who are, you know, they think I'm just being funny. And I'm like, you know, the autistic delivery, that bluntness, that that matter of fact approach to life, that black and white approach that I also see in my my eldest so so often. Um, I'm reminded of a time she got a piece of homework from school and said, in each box, write a tweet about write a tweet or something like that. So what she did is in each box, she wrote the the words a tweet, a tweet. A. Sure. She had no idea what Twitter was. She didn't yeah. care. 
disengage from that. And, and so people find humor in these things. And I'm sitting there thinking, no, this is an autistic processing a concrete world. You told me to write a tweet. So I wrote a tweet. Mm. I don't know what else to do. Yeah. So when I'm delivering speeches or delivering, uh, doing a Q&A, I'm an equal opportunity offender in some ways. But I think that it's because my black and white thinking, I am so honed in on what do special needs students need? What do second language learners need? What do some of our oppressed communities need? Uh, you know, how can we better meet those needs? And I'm just really blunt sometimes. I'll just say it. I, I, I don't like, don't care about your football team. Just yeah. don't care. Yeah, yeah. Great, yay for you, your league 6A with a $16 million stadium. Woohoo. And what I find fascinating is when I go to these presentations, they sometimes will, will introduce, you know, the schools you went to and they'll do that and they'll say, oh, you went to, you know, a, a, at the time it was a Pac-10, USC, and you went to Minnesota, you know, the Minnesota, whatever, Gophers. I had no idea what. <laughs> I say, you. Wow, you went to two big football schools. And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, that's, I went to the schools to, I don't know, get an education. Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't live on that same, I'm not in that same uh, thought pattern. Yeah. And it's really strange because that bluntness is not what people are accustomed to. So they think you're telling a joke. They think you're being funny. They think you're being dismissive of their concerns. And I try to say, I'm not dismissive of the concerns of people who say, wow, this book has graphic sex in it, or that this book doesn't say enough about how uh, black Americans contributed to history. I understand both types of arguments. They're just not important are, in the big scheme of $500 yeah. million dollar school budgets. You're oh, talking about absolutely. $12 books. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, Priorities. And so, yeah. And, and so the autism, and I don't know if you're finding this now that you have the diagnosis, but as I look at my life, I know my blunt mouth has always gotten me into trouble. That's my husband. I am, <laughs> and, and definitely our daughter and um, our son. Yeah, a hundred percent because his his cognitive, you know, and support needs are are much higher than the rest of us. But exactly, and it, it's almost like we can't really prepare the world enough for that. <laughs> they have to kind of. Um, a swing with the fences as it go right on, on that one. So that's funny. I was, you know, the, the epitome of to my not fitting in, in in the university was being at a, a meeting where they were talking about diversity and how we needed to promote diversity. And I just bluntly said, look around the table. We're all white middle-class professors and we're talking about diversity. Yeah. And, and they all were like, well, you know, we yes, it's up to us. Really? Yeah. I think we should go ask the minority students that we're talking about. How could we improve our classes for you? What would you like to see included in the curriculum? How could we better represent um, the the Black experience or the the Spanish-speaking experience or, you know, the the Latin, uh, the Latine, um, you know, and and thankfully, you know, I had a student tell me Latinx sounds stupid. That's not how we, Latinx (laughs) in Spanish, We, we would say Latino, Latina. But Latine is kind of okay. We'll go with, you know, and we need to listen to them instead of giving them labels and tell them what they should be. And so as professors, here you have this group of white 
middle-class professors determining what we were going to do to promote diversity. And I was the one saying, well, maybe we could do a survey and ask the students. Yeah. Let's the ask parents. the people that are matter know. the most. Yeah. Because I'm not one of them. Yeah. And they all looked at me like, well, how can you say that? You're disabled. And I'm like, but I'm not black. Yeah. I'm not. I, I'm not a woman. I can't tell you what should be in our feminist literature course. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so sometimes the best thing we can do is shut up. But as an autistic, I say that I'm thinking we should shut up. I will say loudly, <laughs> we should shut up. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so I'm so glad that we got to connect and um, have you on the show today. It's been a real pleasure to have this conversation and really good topics that we need to shine more light on and have normalized in our community. And instead of having them have the hot topic buttons, right? We should have just normal discussions. So thank you so much for your time today. And I hope we can stay in touch and, and uh, keep track of each other and what things are happening. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to get to know you more. And yeah, like I said, I look forward to staying in touch and kind of seeing what happens in the future. Do you have any future plans for you writing any books for us or anything like that? Uh, actually, the oldest and I have been working on uh, several projects together. I'm updating some books that I had started and set aside on relationships and autism. The Good. The challenge with those projects is, you know, you're going to offend somebody. Mm -hmm. And so it's always like, how do you get this done and get it out there in a way yeah. that, that can be accepted? I, I find that the, the, the place for the radical moderate, the, the loud voice in the middle is a very narrow space. They will tell you, well, you're not promoting enough about all these other groups. And it's just like, I can only I can only speak for myself and my family. I yeah. don't know what everyone else has been through. A thousand percent. And we should, we should be letting those people tell their stories so that we can learn from them and not assume or have any, I uh, know when we have no knowledge, we have known <laughs> no knowledge. So, and I think that's why on my own podcast, again, when you take it, the reason I even re renamed it, it over time from the autistic me to perspectives on neurodiversity was I found that I am a male diagnosed with autistic traits. There are a lot of white males diagnosed, but other groups are frequently missed. Women yeah. and young girls are frequently missed in the diagnoses. Minorities are frequently missed in the diagnoses. So now I'm making it more of my mission to have more, more, diversity on my own show, because mm -hmm. I think that I was only speaking to a perspective that is heard so often that we, it has almost become the, the stereotype of the autistic person is the, the white overeducated yeah. college level, you know, instructor, whether it's something like the good doctor, big bang theory, yes. rain man, these are all mm -hmm. depictions that well, they may or may not have some nuggets of truth in them. We are not hearing from other perspectives. And now, especially yeah. as, as the father of two daughters, I'm starting to say, boy, their voices need to be heard more than yeah, mine. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I am really glad that we were able to do this today. And again, I thank you so much for your time and um, all of this wonderful knowledge that you shared with us. So thank you so much for the hard work you're doing.
Thank you. Thank you so much.